0: I don't know what most white people in this country feel But I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution Now, this is the evidence You want me to make an act of faith Risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children On some idealism which you assure me exists in America Which I have never seen
1: Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts Katina and Gary. Today's topic is Angela Davis. We first talk about her early life and how she was raised in elementary school up through college. We then start to discover what shaped some of her political views as she was growing up. Talk through some various stories and run-ins that her and some of her colleagues had with the LAPD, her involvement in SNCC, a little bit about the Soledad brothers, and we end this part one of two episodes with Angela and her friend Helen on the run. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, today we're talking about Angela Davis, and I'm not sure we're going to be able to get through all the information that Garen and Katina have compiled, but let's let's start. I have a little bit of background with who Angela Davis is and some of the work she's done, but let's dive in. For the listener that has no idea who she is, let's talk about her. What do we need to know? Angela Davis,
2: unlike most of the people we've covered so far, is still alive and still active in work and activism. So I want to start with a quote from her, and then that'll kind of launch us into the conversation. Okay. She said, The police lynching of George Floyd was not so much the cause of the enormous surge of marches, rallies, and demonstrations that gathered steam as they moved around the world as the catalyst for these mass actions. In order to provide a conscious assessment of the reason so many people felt compelled to protest the act of blatant, violent racism, a much longer view of history is required. The movements of the late 1960s and early 1970s didn't simply fall away after they ceased to command the attention of the mass media. So she's drawing our attention to something at the very beginning of this whole podcast journey. We kind of highlighted the same thing, this point that the movements of today and what's happening in the world today is built on this foundation of the teeming energy of the things that have come before. And so... Let's look at that past, and specifically, she highlights the actions of the 1960s and early 1970s, and so that's where we're going to kind of spend time looking at her story. But before we get to that, we need to talk about her childhood and upbringing. Angela was born into a government housing project on 8th Street in Birmingham, Alabama. She describes it saying, All the buildings looked the same, and there was no room for plants to grow, but the people were friendly. In 1948, her family moved to a house in a white neighborhood, and they were the first family to move in, so they were the first ones to really integrate this all-white neighborhood. And she was only four years old. She says that she was aware that their new neighbors were different, not necessarily because they were white, but because they scowled at her. The white families claimed that the family, the, the Davises, would be left in peace as long as they always stayed on the east side of Center Street. But if they crossed, they were threatened that it would be war. So it was a hostile environment, but one in which they had a good bit of land. It it was not like a crowded neighborhood. They had land, and she was able to have her own space and her own peace,
1: but also there was this kind of hostility that was nearby. That's that kind of thing where I think a lot of white people don't try to sympathize with. Okay, yeah, so could black and brown people move into neighborhoods, to some neighborhoods, and could they live in certain places? Yeah, I guess they had the freedom to do that. But then, like, imagine being a black or brown family. And this is where it's, I think, hard for us to imagine that. It's like, imagine being the only one and then moving into an all-white neighborhood. And all those white people are not, like, super welcoming, friendly, and loving the fact that a black or brown family is coming in, you know? It's like, it withers away that whole idea of, like, you know, there wasn't anything against the law. You know, they could do it. And it's, like, such a an unsympathizing way to view history. Yeah.
2: Even after housing in America was officially desegregated, you had, and and we'll see this in the next turn in this story, is there was still violent opposition to integration of neighborhoods. And so, and that's where this goes. And I, I think you don't even know that I'm going here, but you transitioned it well. Her neighborhood came to be called or referred to as Dynamite Hill. Because of the number of house bombings of black families that moved in. That every time a black family would move in and would cross that line to the west side of Center Street, the sheriff, Bull Connor, would announce on the radio that there would be blood that night and the house would be bombed. And so the whole neighborhood came to be known as Dynamite Hill. So she had this relative calm because they stayed on their side of the street. But she lived on this kind of front line of racial injustice and racial hatred. And the, the glares she got from the other side of the street weren't just social rudeness, they were
1: actually like threats. It's hard for people to imagine that that's, that was real, that was a reality for our grandparents. And you know I'm in yeah my she's 30s. still alive today she's a college professor today and that was yeah that's I just think it's so easy for white culture to just blow over that and like oh man that was bad but man really think about that people's houses were blown up from you know we would call them terrorists we I mean they that's terrorism. what they were yeah but it's not like they were these international spies looking for files that would corrupt you know American. <laughs> views it was like no they, they just hated black and brown people mm-hmm. like that like that's it's hard to sympathize with that but mm-hmm. that was a real thing yeah, yeah.
2: I, and I, I think this just it's an interesting thing in the psychology of being part of an oppressed group is you still have to find joy in life and in the midst of the difficulty of what was going on she still found joy of this quote from her describing her childhood she says as a child on the farm I did not distinguish work from play because the work there was novel to me and because I was not forced to do it all the time. When I fed the chickens I would laugh at the way they all raced for the feed and gulped it down. When I gathered the eggs and fed the slop to the hogs, milked the cows and led the workhorses to the watering trough, I was enjoying myself. She still found peace and joy in the midst of that and so even though there were these strict limits put on where she could even physically go, the stores that she could go into, and the things that she could do. She found joy and, and fought for joy. But, I mean, the human mind can cope with pain and compartmentalized. but that's not because the pain wasn't very real and present of, of the things that were happening around her and that she was witnessing, and we'll see that she would continue to witness a lot of brokenness and hurt. But the fact that she could be compartmentalized and be resilient is, first of all, it just says something about her, how strong she was to be able to not be crushed by all the pain that she experienced and saw. Angela's mother had been a teacher, but she stayed home when her children were young. There were four of them, four kids. Her father was also a teacher, but he didn't make much from teaching because in those days in Alabama, black teachers were only paid a fraction, about half of what white teachers were paid for the same work. And so he had to subsidize their income by working at a service station. Her parents taught her that racism was not the natural state of things, but that God had ordained there to be love between people. White people's hatred of us is not natural or eternal, they said. Angela says of her mother, quote, she tried hard to make her little girl so full of hatred and confusion see white people, not so much as they were as in terms of their potential." She did not want me to think of the guns hidden in drawers or the weeping black woman who had come screaming to our door for help, but of a future world of harmony and equality. I didn't know what she was talking about. Hmm. So there's influence from her parents and you can see it was really formative for her, but also it was in contrast to a reality where she didn't really know white people who, at this point, who were kind or were loving. And so it was almost like a foreign language. It didn't connect with her reality at the time. As teenagers, she and her younger sister, Fanya went to a Jim Crow store. I think this is just a, a funny episode that kind of shows a little bit of her personality and her sister's personality. They went to a Jim Crow store and they pretended to be French. They mm-hmm. took on these strong, thick French accents and in those days, if you were black, you couldn't be at the front of a store. You had to go to the back where you wouldn't be seen. And they went in with these French accents, and the store just thought that they were dignitaries. They ushered them to the front of the store. The manager came and personally waited on them. And they got all this attention, people asking them questions about the world because they thought they were, you know, had traveled the world. Wow. And then partway through the charade, they just and Angela just started laughing and the manager kind of was laughing at first and then like, what are you laughing at? And then, so she laughed and responded to him, you are what is so funny. All black people have to do is come in here with an accent and you treat us like dignitaries.
0: And it's interesting because it's their significance in that moment became their proximity to whiteness, Mm. to European culture.
2: Yeah, Yeah.
0: Seeing them, but still othering, otherizing them, it's like you're an another type of black person because we we see black people as this, but you're another type of black person to be
2: a spectacle for us. Mm. Yeah. In the South, in Alabama, there's this recognition that like, oh, French culture is even whiter than our culture. It's like almost this, it's seen as this elevated culture. So then there was this pause in their racism exactly. because of that connection to Another white culture. I wonder
1: what if that guy yeah. th- just thought about that the rest of his life. <laughs> like, what a, what a run-in. I mean, he's, he, there's a potential he's probably still alive. Yeah. Maybe, but that's, wow. Yeah. yeah.
2: So then her school experience as she was kind of, she went to segregated schools, so black segregated schools. But I think this is an important point to highlight. Those black segregated schools were under the power of white school boards, entirely white school boards. And so they weren't this empowering education that we would maybe think that they would be. She says that white men from the school board routinely inspected the school and carried themselves with this unconcerned pride. They would regularly slight the teachers, the black teachers who were there. They refused to call them by their last names, even in front of the students, and would disrespect them in front of the students. When one teacher, Mr. Jesse Champion, corrected the school board by saying his name, They fired him on the spot. Just for saying what his last name was. These same school board members also oversaw the curriculum, which taught that the Civil War had been fought as a war for Southern independence,
1: not over slavery. Hold on, wait. Are you saying, just to verify, (laughs) that the Civil War was fought purely because of slavery? Here you come. (laughs) Just wanted to... The South... It to preserve slavery. It's just funny you ask
0: that like every time that comes up, and you ain't. Well, there's
1: just a lot of people who still retain
0: that information.
1: Well, I'm retaining it. There's a lot of people who don't (laughs) seem to retain. retain. I just want to clarify it wasn't. Yes.
0: Yes. Yes. You tickle me, Brad.
2: They also taught, and this is kind of related, it's all under that same rubric, but they also taught that enslaved people were happier in slavery. Uh, oh, yeah. The happy,
0: darky narrative mm-hmm. is what,
2: yeah. Yeah, which you would think that it would be kind of a safe space.
0: Inclusive, yeah.
2: Yeah, a space
1: where black people could learn their history from their community and empower yeah, like, the almost next generation. Almost like, generation. Hey, you guys do your thing over there. We're going to do our thing over yeah, here. Yeah, right. but it wasn't. It was the white school board would give them this
2: curriculum, force them to use this curriculum, have this constant threat of being able to fire any of their teachers for the the little slights. So it's really not an empowering place.
0: I'm gonna pull a brat. So you mean to tell me that <laughs> during that time during Jim Crow that white people were threatened by black history? Yes. That is so foreign, like to me. Like I, I cannot understand and compute with that. Anyways,
2: yeah, yeah. So it is not it is not a novel thing in our generation that true history is threatening to people who want the narrative to right? justify their worldview. Whew, uh,
0: this is exhausting,
2: but yeah. So Angela also referred to what she called Booker T. Washington syndrome. This idea of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, which was part of what the school board curriculum taught was this idea of you just need to try harder and work harder and pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but not rock the boat or change the system. And it's called Booker T. Washington Syndrome at some point. And we've talked about him before a little bit, but but he was a complicated figure. Yeah, we'll probably do an episode on him, but we've Um, we've
1: talked about him a lot. And and he's tied into a lot of different episodes, even our episodes that are on Dallas specifically. We talked a little bit more about yeah, Yeah.
2: And this whole idea of like this bootstrap ideology, it kind of backfired on the black community and was harmful to the sense of understanding of self in the black community because it reinterpreted black poverty as a sign of black laziness right. and eroded the sense of self and reinforced racial stereotypes. Mm. So it wasn't this empowering vision. It was almost this like, well, then what does that say about us? Right. Rather than recognizing that the black community was where it was because of all this oppression and racial injustice.
0: Kind of like telling women to get up off their effing behinds and go to work. The, the headline that we've heard recently—have y'all heard that one? No. A very famous person who is very privileged and has a lot of reality TV money and residuals and came from a wealthy family. What would you say to women today? Get up off your effing a and work. Hmm. Y'all look that up. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a very inspirational, <laughs> very, very leader.
0: Uh Someone who's rich and privileged to tell people to get up and work. Just just be rich and privileged, people. Right. Yeah, why
2: can't you be privileged? Mm. Okay, so jumping back in, the NAACP was part of her early childhood because her parents were both involved. But then Alabama made it illegal. They criminalized membership in the NAACP. And Angela's parents received bomb threats for their defiant stand, being a part of it. But to kind of get around the law in Alabama, the the membership there kind of morphed into the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights, which was headed by a Reverend Shuttlesworth. And on Christmas night, on the eve of a planned boycott that they were going to do of the busing system, dynamite ripped apart the home of that Reverend Shuttlesworth. And mm. this was someone that Angela's family was close to. It had been planted under his bed, but mm. in this miracle he didn't have a scratch on him even while his entire home was destroyed wow somehow the 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 mattress or a miracle saved his life or a combination of the two and he responded he was just like this unshakable man he responded by getting up and helping an injured neighbor it's like this Dynamite had injured one of his neighbors, but not him, even though it was Mm. under his bed, helped one of his neighbors to the hospital, and then defiantly rode the bus home sitting in one of the front seats that were forbidden for black people to sit in.
0: So powerful when you think about black people living to the backdrop of enslavement or Jim Crow and just the ways that they resist some quietly Some boldly like Mm -hmm. Mr. Shuttlesworth. Some like Angela's parents. Because it's interesting because a lot of civil rights icons that we know of now, many of them, you know, their parents, out of fear, would try to keep their kids from participating in this type of movement. Mm -hmm. But it's so powerful, I think. And it speaks to who Angela Davis is, that her parents were both civil rights workers themselves. And she would like... Take from her dad's like money jar and give to students in her class. And her mom would take clothing from their, you know, wardrobe and give to other kids and how they nurtured the community. And every little act, whether it was something that was very so small that it's not written in in the history books, or whether it's something that's so iconic, for lack of a better word, even though very traumatic and thinking that black people shouldn't have had to. They shouldn't have had to do any of this. They should have been, we should have been able to just live and exist. Every little piece, finding little moments of joy in things under the white gaze, in fear of being bombed, but at the same time, carving out and curating uh, safe spaces to exist. I mean, it's just astounding to think about how black people existed under Mm -hmm. all of this and then found time to actually resist in little and major ways while enduring and
2: absorbing trauma. Mm-hmm. Just to highlight or second that, just how big of a role terrorism played. Ooh. And this is somebody who, like Angela Davis, is a current leader of our society. This yes. was not a long time ago. But her parents received bomb threats for their activism. She lived on Dynamite Hill because of the bombs that would go off. The local sheriff, Bill, Bill Connor, was horribly unjust. We could do a whole, I mean, I don't know if we want to do an episode on him, but he right. he's like villain in multiple episodes that we've done. This man, Mr. Shuttlesworth, who was a like a family friend, had his home destroyed. This was a constant continual feature and and it's going to come back again in the story like this is we're not even done listing the acts of terrorism that personally touched her
0: including and I'll mention this one it's so funny we don't think about our our civil rights leaders and figures how they had so much proximity to each other so Angela Davis family I think I saw a video where she talked about how she her family knew Megger Evers family and interestingly enough he died. He was shot down in front of his home, mm-hmm. and he was a civil rights. Of course, he was a civil rights leader, and in Mississippi. But his wife had fought for thirty years, Merle Eggers, who is still living. Mm-hmm. She's eighty-nine, and she's still alive. And she fought for thirty years for the man who killed her husband to actually be in prison, mm-hmm. go to prison. Wow!
2: Wow! Yep. So many layers. Yeah. And we'll we'll revisit this before we finish this episode. Uh, Even more layers that get added to that. Yeah. But first in high school, she was accepted to a Quaker run high school program that was up in New York that was desegregating some of the schools up in New York. And so for, I think it was her junior year of high school. So the tail end of high school, she went up to New York to study up there which was, she'd been to New York before, I think her, she had an uncle up there, but she talks about how it was this culture shock experience, riding on the train up to go to this new school, and all of a sudden, white people getting onto her train car, which had been a segregated train car, but then crossing the Mason-Dixon line, white people came onto the train car with her, and she wondered to herself how she was going to make it in such white spaces, because white people had always been danger to her, to her family, to everyone she knew. White people weren't safe in Alabama. And so carrying the weight of that trauma, she says, the impact of racism upon me had been so tremendous that I knew I would have to exercise great effort to fit into a predominantly white world. I would have to be open and guarded at the same time. I did not yet know what I would also encounter was white liberals' tendency to be over-solicitous of their few black acquaintances, but I would try hard to be at ease, to be accessible to whatever humaneness and kindness they would show me. Wow. So she was, you can see the influence of her parents there. She was fighting for a worldview that was open and not just, I mean, you can react in the face of that kind of treatment that she faced. You could react by just hating white people and coming to like a militant attitude but it takes a special kind of character to not just react and resort to that, but to try to remain open, to fight to remain open to loving and knowing and, and being connected to people who are frightening and not, and, and unsafe. But she fought for that. Hmm. She studied, and, and we're not going to go into the full details. She went, she went to a few different schools and moved around, studied abroad in multiple different universities, So as she studied then in college and beyond, Angela had an epiphany that success would not just come from bootstrap effort, from individualistic attempts to pick oneself up by our bootstraps, but that it had to come through systemic change. She describes saying, Images stirred up in my mind of black workers in Birmingham trekking every morning to the steel mill or descending into the mines. Like an expert surgeon, this document cut away cataracts from my eyes, the eyes heavy with hatred from Dynamite Hill, the whir of explosives, the fear, the hidden guns, the weeping black woman at our door, the children without lunches, the schoolyard bloodshed, the social games of the black middle class, shack one, shack two, in the back of the bus, the police searches, it all fell into place. What had seemed a personal hatred of me, an inexplicable refusal of southern whites to confront their own emotions, and a stubborn willingness of blacks to acquiesce, became the inevitable consequence of a ruthless system that kept itself alive and well by encouraging spite, competition, and the oppression of one group by another. Profit was the word, and the cold, constant motive for the behavior, the contempt, and the despair I had seen. So Angela came to see that the downside of capitalism was behind so much of the pain, so much of the... Terroristic violence that she had witnessed and experienced. So much of the suffering of her community was driven by this profit motive of people who were in charge of industry or society who were trying to foment racism and racial division in order to maintain control. And this is something we haven't talked extensively about the labor movement, but this also plays in with the labor movement because there was this dynamic at that point where capitalists were basically trying to divide black labor from white labor and play them off of each other to negotiate down wages. Because they knew that if unions became integrated and white and black laborers kind of stood fast together and said, no, we're only going to work if you raise our wage to this, then they would have to pay that. But if they can keep them divided, they can just play them off of each other. And so capitalism really was, at that point, causing a lot of racial division. A lot of it was fed by capitalist leaders of society. It was a tool of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she started to see that, and where she went with that was towards communism. And we talked about before how communism was doing outreach with black communities, because how could you not be, how would that not have appeal to you if you are in a racial caste where you cannot get a job doing, like a lot of industries just would not hire black people in those days, or a lot of degrees, a lot of colleges wouldn't accept them, a lot of degree programs wouldn't accept them, a lot of certifications weren't open to them. Mm -hmm. And so then for communism to come and say, hey, let's create a world where it's completely equal and everyone has equal opportunity. Also in Russia, there was I think there was still racism, but there was less racism or black people had more opportunity in a lot of communist societies. And so there was appeal to that. And we've said before, we've talked about communism before and how I think communism is in its attempt to create perfect equality. It doesn't work because it. the only way you can do that is through authoritarian force. And so communist countries end up becoming authoritarian. But the appeal of what Angela saw in communism, what she was going after, what her heart was actually resonating with, was a very good thing. A desire to move towards equality, to end the racial caste system. She later on advocated for prison reform, for a lot of reforms. We'll talk about them later. I'm not going to go over all of it now. But a lot of movements and reforms to try to make society more equal and have more opportunity for for everyone.
0: Well, and I think that we need to be careful because we were talking before we recorded, Mm -hmm. and we don't have to defend or denounce communism. We know a tool of white supremacy is propaganda against communism, against socialism, and a lot of ideas that, you know, a lot of ideas of fighting oppression or resisting have been categorized as socialist or communist, which is a lot of that effort is is propaganda to basically just shut things down or shut people down or say that they are not one of us to otherwise. But the thing about it is that, of course, black people were going to wrestle with ideologies and different political positions just as much as white people do. And white supremacy has done it to its own advantage. White supremacy has taken, uses capitalism and this whole romanticizing of democracy and this romanticizing of patriotism when we know that the founding fathers, they did things that were horrible but they still can idealize, romanticize these people. Whereas black people, they will take one little thing in our lives and they will just, like, she was a communist. Oh my gosh, she was a communist. We need to be able to come to the table and look at people's lives and look at the whole of what they were about and who they were. And she ended up leaving the Communist Party, which she she doesn't really owe us that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. she In
2: 1991, this is a quote from her. She said, most of us left the Communist Party in 1991 after failed attempts at internal democratization. And then she went on to become a founding member of the Committee of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism. And so she valued democracy. And I think she saw the same thing that is my main concern with communism, is that it falls into or degrades into authoritarianism and ends up a lot of Communist countries, as we see them in the world, as we see it actually expressed, it ends up stripping freedom from people. And she was not at all about that. And she explicitly said that she, that was her concern with communism. So I think she had this ideal communism resonated with, or, or kind of, she had this ideal of a world that's fair, where people don't have so much power concentrated that they can oppress others. And that is something that, like we bomb agree their homes. With. Yeah. Yeah. And then how to get from there, here to there she wrestled with because she was like, I don't actually see the path of how to make it work, but communism had an appeal to her that I think
0: and I think she said, she's quote, there's a quote from her that sums this up really well. She said, you see, many people assume that the only way you can support someone like Barack Obama is to agree with everything he says. And that is not a good support. That is not the best way to support anyone. So, you know, she was a great critical thinker who wrestled with the topics, the, the
2: issues. With how to make a world where power doesn't abuse people. Right. And so I would just encourage listeners, if you think power should not abuse people, then don't be scared off by the label communism that she kind of wrestled with whether or not to wear that label throughout her life. But instead, just listen to her actual, what she was about and the ways that she tried to keep power from being abusive. And you'll see like, oh, okay, actually, I I resonate with all that. So getting back into it, into the story yet, we're not fully going to get into her all of her views yet, but we'll get into that later. Getting back into the story. So she was studying abroad in Paris, starting to wrestle through all of these things when she got news that shook her of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing back in Birmingham. And I think that news shook all of America, but it did something different to Angela because she recognized the names of all four of the girls who were murdered. Carol Robertson, Cynthia Wesley, Addie Mae Collins and Denise McNair. They were childhood and family friends for her. Carol Robertson was close friends with Fanya, Angela's younger sister, and she and Fanya tagged along with Angela when they were little. When Miss Robertson had heard about the bombing, she asked Angela's mother to be the one to drive her to the church to pick up Carol, and only at the church realized that her daughter was killed in the bombing. So Angela's mom was there for that, to walk with her through that grief. Hmm. The Wesleys lived just a few hundred feet from Angela's home, so they were n- nearby neighbors. And they had been childless until Cynthia had come to live with them, and they adopted her. Cynthia had been a playmate of Fanya's as well, and Angela's mother had taught Denise in the first grade. Wow. So it hit close to home, and this is stacked on top of everything we said earlier, of the other forms of terroristic violence that Angela had been touched by or had experienced.
0: And the overlapping of how one person's, when we think of these historical figures and their stories, we don't humanize them enough. But yes, of course, these people were walking, working, they were living, doing community together in one person's story pours over into another person's life because they were neighbors and they were serving together and they were fighting together and they were going to church together going to school together seeing each other at the grocery store giving each other rides so mm-hmm. i think that's something that you know people need to really grasp to that concept that these are not just individual people with isolated stories that a lot of these stories are so heavily intertwined mm-hmm. it it's just Wow, mm-hmm.
2: the the whole community was yeah. thrust into grief and I mean think of what that would do to the psychology of a community that's been told pick yourself up by your bootstraps pick yourself up by your bootstraps and then simultaneously is facing terrorism and threats of violence for buying homes My for God. like the very things they're being told to do and then watching their children be killed and then knowing that if we do anything to react like any anything that we do uh, as far as like unrest or any any kind of seeking of vengeance or self-defense is going to just cause a tenfold backlash yeah so there's like a grief and a powerlessness to that community and i think most of us have heard of that bombing but just to wrestle with how much deeper it went for those who were close to it and how it affected the community and that that again i mean we always say this that it was not ancient history I mean, Angela's alive today and still busy at work yeah. doing activism. Very and, active. Yeah, very active. And this is something that hits so close to home for her. How many other people are still carrying that grief through today? And when you say racism isn't a thing anymore, there are literally people who hear that who carry this grief with them. All right. That still are carrying this trauma with them. So from there... Angela came back from her study abroad. She got her PhD over in Germany, and then she came and attended the University of San Diego. At a demonstration there, someone from her group was arrested and charged with obstructing the sidewalk. Like arrest. What, what
1: year is this? What are we, where is this now?
2: Around 69, I think, ish. Okay. So someone was arrested with obstructing the sidewalk, which just think how ridiculous of a charge that is. It's like made up. It's not even a real thing. And that was because they were passing out literature for, I think it was communist literature. And so Angela and others in her group went to the station to inquire why that had happened and asked the police chief if other groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses were also arrested when they obstruct the sidewalk, because that's a regular thing to pass out literature. Are you doing this to everyone? And he was put on the defensive and then got frustrated and just arrested them. And he put Angela and one of the other women in a patrol car or he had them locked into a patrol car that was scorching hot in the heat of the day. And they were in the car to the point that they were almost panicking because they were like overheating and sweating and weren't sure how long they'd be left in there. Then an officer came in and just started threatening them and mocking them. And then ultimately they were taken to a station where, just in a way that was, I think, meant to strip dignity. They were forced to strip in front of a matron and to be searched. So all of this at the hands of the police. And this starts a new theme that we're going to see. We've kind of talked about the terrorism that she saw, but now as she's in California, there's this theme of you'll see over and over again. Injustice in the policing system in California is a major theme of the next part of her story. Yeah. So word got out about what had happened and a protest started to form. A local radio station put a hourly spotlight up asking listeners whether they'd heard about these students who were arrested for inquiring about the law. And after two days of mounting pressure, the prosecutor did drop the charges. So there's a little victory for the activist movement there. So that was not the worst of Angela's experience with the LAPD. She says in a quote, many of its members having been recruited from the deep South, the LAPD was perhaps the most vicious in the country. And more important than its viciousness, it was the best equipped. And she was saying this in the wake of the, after she was describing the MLK killing. And she said a physical confrontation had to be avoided for in it, the black community would be doomed. Nevertheless, the eagerness to fight back could not be permitted to wither away. It had to be channeled into a political direction. We needed a mass political event to put forth a call for a renewed intensive struggle against racism. Racism was Martin Luther King's assassin, and it was racism that had to be attacked. So you can see there so clearly that she was trying to take a community that was tempted by the thought of taking violent revenge for what had happened. And she was trying to not remove that anger, but to channel it away from violence and into a productive political direction that was actually going to create change. Which to me seems like exactly the kind of leader that the white community should have been, if anything, lauding. Like a leader who's trying to diffuse violence and move that energy into a direction that would seek justice. But that was actually the opposite of the reception she received. She was, if anything, considered by the FBI and the Hoover, kind of Hoover FBI to be more dangerous for the fact that she was trying to create real political change. She said in, in one place that she thought they were far more worried about her attempts to create political change than just the black people who were saying, off the pigs, referring to the police. Because she was creating a movement that was not going to just diffuse with the passage of time, but was going to build towards demand for actual change. So, all over LA, the police invited unrest. And this, again, is in the wake of the MLK assassination. They were mounting machine guns on police stations in the ghettos, they were disrupting the community. And on one occasion, they bloodied up a black young man and dropped him off outside of the organizer's house as if to provoke a response. Angela worried that they were looking for a cause to use their new riot gear.
1: Did she have any run-in with or meet up with the Black Panthers out there?
2: Yeah. So she, sometimes people say she was part of the Black Panthers, which actually is, it's a little bit more complicated. She was part of the Black Panthers, I think the Black Panthers People's Party. It was yeah. another party called the Black Panthers, but it's not right. the same one as we think of. Okay. Right. And then she was an affiliate of the Black Panthers that we know of, but she wasn't actually a member. Right. So she was associated with the Black Panthers loosely. She knew a lot of them, uh, but wasn't an actual member of the Black Panther Party. Yeah. She was a member of, and at this point, here was involved in SNCC. Yeah. So, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. The police, actually, in this next episode, they ransacked the SNCC printing office and arrested three staff. Because SNCC was printing materials that were kind of building the movement that I kind of just described that Angela's kind of a de facto leader in. Yeah. So, she says... We had just produced hundreds of thousands of leaflets protesting Dr. King's murder, explaining the racist forces behind his assassination, and suggesting how we should manifest our resistance. Although they did not often admit it, the ruling circles feared this educational approach far more than they feared the rhetorical threat to off the pigs. They knew our strategy was to organize the masses and that increasing numbers of people were looking to us for knowledge and leadership." So later they sat together to eat dinner after the SNCC office had been raided and they sat together to eat dinner and there was tacks and nails that the police had thrown into this, this simmering cooking pot while they were raiding the office. They'd thrown little tacks and nails into the pot.
1: Into a literal pot?
2: Into a literal pot. There was like food that was simmering. I mean, think like crock pot, but back then it's not like a crock pot. But there's food that was simmering on the stove and they had thrown these nails and tacks into the food so that, I mean, I don't know whether they thought it's probably not realistic that someone would actually probably bite into it because you'd see it in your spoon, but it almost as like a, a threat. Yeah. So then Angela and the other SNCC leaders left everything just as it was and they called a press conference. So rather than taking the bait to react violently, they just shined light on it and showed what the police were doing. Yeah. So then there was a fundraiser that was coming up and Franklin, one of the other leaders in SNCC, had a, a bunch of security. After the fundraiser, he had the security guys that were helping secure the fundraiser all over to his apartment afterwards. And it was, it was like a successful fundraiser. They were over and under the pretext that they were making too much noise, police broke in and arrested them and confiscated all the money, and took the security team's weapons, all of which were legally owned. And they charged everyone there with armed robbery, even though like, the money was from a fundraiser. And this was all done, in reality it was done because Franklin was about to lead a rally the next day to protest the murder of Gregory Clark, a man whom Officer Warren Carlson had shot dead in the back of the head while he was handcuffed for having supposedly stolen a car that he actually owned. <sighs> so this police, I mean, this is like a precursor to the modern day slangs that we hear Black Lives Matter talk about. And Angela, at the start of this episode, we gave that quote about how you have to understand what happened in the 60s and 70s to really get what's happening today. And this is part of what she's referring to, is there is this long history of these things. And this this is one example of them, of the police just... I mean, they went to arrest this man, Gregory Clark, and his friend, saying that they had stolen this car and that they were drinking and driving. And even after they showed that what they were drinking was soda, the police, because of their protests of this isn't right, threw them on the ground, arrested them, and then ultimately shot Gregory. And a white jury... Yeah, I was going to say, did he get in trouble? Let him off without without any consequences, um, saying that it was justified. And the SNCC movement actually even did a, a mock trial and did their own trial, but there's they had no no power to actually implement a sentence. But they right. they did their own trial to just try to show that the evidence that he was guilty. So they arrested Franklin for trying to draw awareness to this, but instead of disrupting that planned protest, SNCC just changed the venue of the protest that was going to happen the next day to the courthouse where Franklin was being arraigned and in the face of this massive group that was coming in and protesting, the judge under that pressure released Franklin and his security team. So that was, again, a win for the community that helped the black power community feel like they actually maybe could start to make some changes. Um, could you know They were seeing that they were having some success by drawing awareness to some of the things that were happening. Right the FBI was catching wind of everything that was happening and they were trying to smear Angela Davis. They sent in FBI agents or hired people to smear her at at her university. Mm -hmm. So at UCLA, she got a job at UCLA and they placed multiple letters in the school newspaper. I think it was the school newspaper. Yeah. They placed multiple letters in the campus newspaper, just trying to create outcry that the school had hired a communist. And it was the FBI behind this, trying to smear her, trying to ruin her career. Meanwhile, Ronald Reagan pressured the university to fire her, hmm. which they did. But then that caused outcry. And then the, the outcry grew when a court found that, in, in Angela's favor, that the school couldn't just fire her because of her political views. And so they had to bring her back. But then, you know, not to be deterred, the school just went ahead and fired her again shortly thereafter, just with new reasons. they fired her, I think they, the excuse was because she was using rhetoric they didn't like. Wow! I think because she had called police pigs. It gets to either way, the FBI is the FBI is sus. Not, not doing not, not super
1: so great, right? Sixties yeah. and seventies. Mm-hmm. So,
2: if you're thinking right now, the FBI and the police don't look very good in this story. That's then what I'm thinking. I'm about to read something that is just going to continue to make you think that. <laughs> so then the police broke into Angela's apartment in San Diego. The, she had a deal on apartment in San Diego. She, she, she actually maintained that apartment even after she moved away so that she had somewhere to kind of go rest, at like a place away from LA that she could go and kind of retreat to but while she wasn't there she or maybe just even while she was there she had her her sister and brother-in-law were staying there and so fanya angela's sister uh, had married a man named sam and they were staying there and the police broke in and they shot sam and then they ransacked the apartment and then they arrested fanya also and as they were doing that one of the cops pointed his gun at her baby and then Fanya and Sam were charged with attempted murder because Sam had fired at the cops while they were breaking into the home he was staying in. That sounds familiar. Yep, that is echoed in modern times. Yes. And then papers all over the state posted headlines. like So the white press posted headlines kind of smearing Angela's family and uh, saying, Angela Davis Kin charged with attempted murder.
1: Yeah. So
2: trying to smear Angela for this proximity to this attempted murder, when in reality, what was happening was a horrible case of police injustice, I mean, police persecution to break into Angela's home for for no reason other than because she was fomenting or raising awareness, shining a spotlight on police injustice. And then the response was more police injustice. That then, because her family was there, they were caught up in it. And two judges dismissed the case against Vanya and Sam, but then a grand jury just kept indicting them for it, and it kept getting dismissed again because it was it was baseless, because it was a clear case of self defense. But you can see how like this white grand jury was just continuing to try to press for charges. Where so, where are we at with no knock warrants and stuff? Is that still complete? Still do that in places? To my knowledge, there's been like states and localities have moved away from. But there's been no, like, federal legislation that has ended no-knock warrants. So I think there's less places that can do them, but they still happen. There there was one just recently, like really recently, that resulted in a young man getting shot and killed. He wasn't even the one they were, like, looking for.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah, I think they still happen. So in this next chapter of the story, come to the Soledad brothers. Soledad was a prison in California, Soledad Prison, And as background, guards in Soledad had murdered three black inmates, basically for really for no reason. And then an all-white jury had called those killings justified and let the guards off. So the black prisoners were furious at the prison because they knew that this was just a senseless, cruel murder. And so then someone, and history has no idea who, one of the black prisoners of the prison had pushed a white guard over a railing, killing him, like seeking vengeance for this thing that had happened. So then the guards, it's just like this back and forth cycle of violence, because then the guards wanted to find someone to make an example of, and they didn't know which prisoner had killed this other guard. And so then they basically just picked three prisoners to throw uh, throw under the bus. I think that's not even a harsh enough expression to try to kill yeah. through the legal system, to try to charge with the murder. And I mean, I'm sure their intent was for them to get the death penalty and, and to be killed, even though there was no reason to think they were actually guilty. They just wanted to find people to take their frustration out on. And so the men that they chose were George Jackson... Flita Drumgo and John Clatchett, And the, those men were chosen in particular because they were involved in the Black Power Movement. So they were targeted. Um, and they
0: became known as the Soledad Brothers.
2: Yes, yeah. They became known as the Soledad Brothers, and that became a rallying cry of the Black Power Movement at that point. Free the Soledad Brothers. A little backstory on George, because he actually got close to Angela, and just want to go into a little bit of his story why he was in prison, he had been arrested as a youth because his friend had stolen something from a service station. And even though George wasn't even aware that his friend had stolen something, he was arrested and then an inadequate public defender totally failed him. And so he was convicted and given a sentence. And how crazy is this sentence? He was given a sentence of one year to life. Like, what does that even mean? Right? They, they gave him a sense of one year to life. Almost this, it's almost this form of torture of he could continually feel like maybe this next year is the year I'll get free. Maybe this next year, maybe they'll let me go. And they were just stringing him along in 10 years into that sentence for this crime, if you call it that, like that he had had a friend commit a petty theft. 10 years into that sentence, George was one of these black men who was chosen to be, The vengeance, like to essentially be like the revenge lynching for, to feed the guards wrath for what had happened.
0: And it had a huge impact on Angela. She said, bile rose in my throat regarding the Soledad brothers and how they came to Mm -hmm. be accused. She said, bile rose in my throat, but more powerful than the taste of outrage was the dominating presence of the brothers for the brothers were beautiful chained and shackled they were all standing tall and they were beautiful and and that resonates because even though the system sought to chain and shackle them it could not suppress their beauty mm-hmm. and the words when she uses the word brothers it's just that unity of resistance mm-hmm. that unity of the commonality of the african american experience mm-hmm. so that's a powerful yeah it, it really statement. is
2: powerful cuz part of the the whole strategy of the white movement to criminalize and strip of dignity in order to render powerless the black power movement the black leaders the the whole idea of putting someone in prison you can just kind of strip them of dignity you can make them uh, you can take away their humanity their recognition of their dignity yeah. And Angela saw and cut right through that and says, no, these brothers are beautiful. She saw their humanity, saw the dignity, saw that. I mean, why would we think of someone as criminal because of being associated with someone who stole a bag of chips from a convenience store? And then because of that, society takes license to dehumanize him for the rest of his life. I mean, that's so messed up. And Angela wasn't falling for it. She saw and she said, no, these brothers are beautiful. And she led, I think at that point, a lot of the black community, when black people were criminalized and were convicted and labeled prisoners, the black community was at this crossroads of like, do we defend and associate with them? But then we kind of we kind of get pulled down by the bad PR that they're getting. Or do we cut ties with them in order to try to keep our own separation that no, we're not criminals. We're uh, we're black middle class. And so there's like this debate in the black community of how closely to identify with prisoners. And we know kind of on this side we, we there's been a lot more study of the mass incarceration and what that's done. And I think there's more of a recognition growing now of how that whole system was set up to be a tool of white supremacy in order to keep black people down. But that was not as widely recognized in the black power movement and by people at that time. So Angela was kind of a leader in this, this recognition that, like, no, we need to stand with these prisoners and advocate for their fair treatment, advocate for their dignity. But then, ironically, Angela would, uh, as she was doing that activism for the care of and fair treatment of prisoners, she would be, go on the other side of it. She would actually end up in jail herself. She was accused of a crime that, again, Was ridiculous and was not a crime because somebody had used her weapons in the commission of a crime. Essentially, what had happened George's brother, Jonathan Jackson, was so distraught by what was being done to his brother, George, that he had taken some of Angela's weapons, gone into a courthouse where two of his friends were being unjustly tried, and had broken them free, taking hostages. And then there was a shootout that ensued, and in that, Jonathan was killed by the police along with the the two other black defendants and the judge who had been taken hostage. In the wake of that, the state of California indicted Angela because they were her guns, even though she'd had nothing to do with it. They'd indicted her for kidnapping and for murder of this white judge.
0: And then Hoover put her on the FBI's 10
2: Most Wanted list. Yeah really yeah yeah which hoover
1: man hoover
2: Hmm. yeah gosh hoover uh mr cohen pro himself he's so corrupt and yeah so four four days after she was indicted she'd put on the fbi's 10 most wanted list which i mean if you're just like a normal white american you see that and you just assume like wow this is one of the worst people in america When in reality, what had she really done? She had stood up for the rights and freedoms of people who were oppressed. And then she'd been smeared because her sister and brother-in-law had been treated brutally by police. And then she had tragically had the brother of someone she cared very much about, George, George's brother, Jonathan, had in his grief acted irrationally using her guns. And then now she's put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. But for what? Like, she was trying to defuse violence and to channel that anger into a productive direction. Like, that's the work that she was doing. But the FBI seized on this opportunity to try to take her out. So then she's on the run. And that's where we'll leave her until we, you know, this will be a to-be-continued episode. So
0: we'll end part one with a quote from Angela. She and her friend Helen were on the run. Angela was wearing a wig and hoping not to arouse suspicion as she ran from the FBI. And she said, We waited silently, hidden behind drawn curtains. We listened to the street noise coming through the slightly open balcony window. Each time a car slowed down or stopped, each time footsteps tapped the pavement outside, we held our breath, wondering if we had waited too long. Thousands of my ancestors had waited as I had done, for nightfall to cover their steps. They had leaned on one true friend to help them, had felt, as I did, the very teeth of the dogs at their heels. It was simple. I had to be worthy of them.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we will be continuing this two-part series on Angela Davis. We'll leave you with this quote from Lena Horne. It's not the load that breaks you down. It's the way you carry it.